0: Our Old Testament lesson comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 25. Isaiah, chapter 25, hear now the word of our God. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. Therefore strong peoples will glorify you, cities of ruthless nations will fear you, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place, You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride, together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. This is the word of the Lord. In Isaiah 25, Isaiah promises that one day God will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and remove the reproach, remove the shame from all the earth. Well, this is also what Paul will speak of in 1 Corinthians 15, because the good news, the gospel, is that this is what Jesus has done. Jesus has done what Isaiah had promised. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised from the dead according to the scriptures and appeared to Cephas and the Twelve. Children, did you know that you're going to die someday? I know you don't think about it very often right now and eh, you don't need to think about it very often. But even at your age, it's important to remember that we all die. It's why we sing songs like Psalm 49. Psalm 49. Recognizing that there will come a day when we will die. And so what is it that we live for? Uh, Psalm 49 <laughs> reminds us that you know, the one who lives for wealth, the one who lives for stuff. Because I mean, right now, you, you, uh, you may not think, be, think, be thinking much about money, but you probably do think about stuff. You think about toys, you think about games, you think about the things you like to do. And when you focus on stuff, earthly wealth possessions Psalm 49 reminds us all that goes away all that has no lastingness because we don't last it goes to somebody else. what is it that lasts? what is it that matters? what is it that endures? And for that we turn to first Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 35. Hear now the word of our God. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory." Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Where is your hope? Where is your future heading? Where is your story going? I I fear that for many who claim to be Christians, if they were to write their practical creed. The conclusion of the creed would be, I look out for my bodily happiness and the life of the present age. Practically, that's often how we live. Do we really believe what we say in the creed each week? In the Apostles' Creed, we confess the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I like how the Nicene Creed put a little spin on that. I look... I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. It's not just a article of faith that we believe. It's what I'm looking forward to. It's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm aiming at. That's where my life is going. I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come think about paul 's conclusion in Chapter fifteen, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain there's a way in which Paul is in a sense answering psalm forty nine what 's the point of all your labor what 's the point of all that you are doing if if it all just ends in death. Psalm 49 did have that one line, that the Lord, will he will ransom me from death. So, there, but Paul sees far more clearly because he has now seen the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul, Paul seems to think that his whole discussion of the resurrection of, 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 of Jesus and the, of us, that the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting is an eminently practical doctrine Because if you believe in the resurrection of the body, if you look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, then you know that your labors in this body are not in vain because they are in the Lord. The resurrection of the body is proof that in the Lord, your labor, your your toil, in fact, you could translate it troublesome labor, is not in vain be steadfast be immovable always abounding in the work of the lord and the work of the lord refers to everything that you do in the name of the lord jesus christ and and what are you supposed to do in the name of the lord jesus christ well whether you eat or drink or wh- whatever you do do it all in the name of the lord jesus christ so it sort of this kind of covers everything well except sin you really can't sin in the name of the lord that's that's the one thing you can't do in the name of the lord but doing your job is not in vain cleaning the bathroom is not in vain i know so it's like it gets dirty every time right but all that you do in the lord is not in vain the resurrection guarantees that your bodily labor has a purpose what is done in the body matters because of the resurrection Paul had started the chapter by reminding us of the gospel, the good news, the, that which is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and then to the rest of the brothers. In other words, the gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done in history The message of the gospel is not primarily an appeal for you to do something. The message of the gospel is the story of what God has done in Jesus. Greek philosophers would go around telling people how they ought to live. But the apostles used a very different method. J. Gresson Machen once said said it this way. The strange thing about Christianity was that it transformed the lives of men, not by appealing to the human will, but by telling a story, not by exhortation, but by the narration of an event. Because Jesus has been raised as the firstfruits from the dead, therefore all who belong to Jesus will also be raised. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, a century before Paul, the famous Roman orator Cicero had recounted the, the dream of Scipio, in which Scipio speaks to his departed ancestors who had left behind their corruptible bodies and ascended beyond the circle of the moon. There, as disembodied spirits, they lived in peace and tranquility. Cicero, like most Romans, would have precisely asked this question, "'How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Why would you want a body?' The body is the source, and occasion for most of the pain and discomfort we feel. Why do you want to keep your bodies? The, The typical Roman would be quite skeptical regarding the resurrection of the body. Why would you want that? For that matter, the Sadducees, which were a party in Judaism, didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. So the resurrection of the body was not a popular doctrine either for Jews or Greeks. But Paul's point in 1 Corinthians is that in Christ... You are neither Jew nor Gentile. You have been united to Jesus. You have been united in one body to Christ. And so Paul will say, stop being deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. The the resurrection of Jesus means that those who belong to him are now knit together in one new man. If there is no resurrection of the body, there is no resurrection. No new man. And that's why Paul responds with such vehemence in verse 36. You foolish person. It's a strong rebuke. It's the same word that Jesus used when he rebuked the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, cleansing the outside of the cup but leaving wickedness within. You senseless person. You're not thinking clearly. Listen, how is the resurrection body connected to your current body? Paul says it's, it's like a seed. You know, in, in, when you're sowing, you, you what you what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. You take a a, a a seed and you plant it in the in the ground, and what comes out is not a seed. What comes out is a plant. You you plant an acorn, and and this you don't get acorns, you get an oak tree. Now the oak tree will produce more acorns, but the, the seed properly sown will produce this sort of plant. And there's an organic connection between the seed, between the acorn and the oak tree, but you would never guess from looking at an acorn that it'll produce an oak tree. So if you try to try to guess from the shape of the seed, ah, this seed will produce that sort of thing, you're not going to get very far. But when you think about what it means for the body... Paul's saying that when you look at one another and you say, oh, this is what the resurrection body is going to look like? No. That, uh, what, what you see now is the seed. What will be is the, the, true, the true thing, you might say. And, and, and Paul goes on to say in verse 38, but God gives it a body as he's chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. And even among the animal kingdom, there are a variety of bodies. Not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. Flesh, you know, meat, varies between humans, animals, birds, and fish. I mean, all flesh is muscle, but there are differences between different kinds of creatures. I mean, when you eat salmon, it doesn't taste the same as when you eat chicken. Paul applies the same principle to bodies more generally and he says there's there's heavenly bodies and earthly bodies and the difference between heavenly bodies and earthly bodies is not that one is a body and the other is not but that they have different kinds of glory the glory of the heavenly is of one kind the glory of the earthly is of another and when he's speaking of heavenly bodies here he's referring to the sun the moon the stars the sun has a body it's not a flesh and blood sort of body it's a fiery body likewise the moon has a body but the moon's body is not a fiery body the moon's body is a rocky body which reflects the light of the sun the the glory of the moon is different from the glory of the sun and the and star differs from star in glory as you know modern modern astronomers would say oh yeah <laughs> And, but even in the ancient world, they could see, yes, some of them look more red, some of them look more yellow. They, sort of, You can see stars different. And then there's, there's those wandering stars, we call them planets. Uh, but they each have their own glory. Star differs from star. And if you recognize there are different kinds of flesh, different kinds of bodies, different kinds of glories, then you'll be prepared to understand something about the resurrection body. So it is, verse 42, with the resurrection of the dead. And Paul uses these four pairs of opposites to describe the difference. What's what is sown is perishable; what is raised is imperishable. Yeah, perishable refers to that which is corruptible. Uh, the, we still use the, this language this way when we talk about food being perishable and it, it decays. And when when, you're, when the when the food in your refrigerator has reached a certain point of decay, you throw it away because it's not good to eat anymore but what is raised is imperishable now if this was all we had it might sound like paul's talking about some sort of static existence of incorruptibility sort of imperishable like you know, canned fruit or a, a big mac you know <laughs> you know there are there are like 40 50 year old big macs that are still well, they look there's no mold growing on them after that's not Paul's idea of imperishable. Uh-huh. <laughs> After all, look at the next line. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Now, Notice he doesn't say just dishonor and honor. The resurrection is not just a matter of making the dishonorable honorable. No, it's, it's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. The body that was humiliated and covered in shame is now raised up in splendor, beauty, radiance, glory. Our, our problem isn't just sin and guilt. Our problem includes humiliation and shame. Paul reminds us that our shame, our failures, our humiliation is not permanent. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory and splendor. Now, why does Paul say this? Remember who Jesus is. The eternal Son of God joined himself to our humanity in order that he might join us to himself. When he's talking about the life everlasting, this is none other than the life of God himself. The glory that we are raised in is is not just sort of a fading glory. It is the glory of the only begotten Son of God who joined Himself to us. And, and even more, it is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Yeah. My father spent his last decade with dementia. You know, the man who played football on the beach with his teenagers at the age of 60 became in, incapable of even taking care of himself. We are... We are weak. And and this weakness is expressed throughout our lives. We, the power of habit sets grooves in our, in our lives and ruts that we fall into. And because of our weakness, we find it hard to break out. But even as Paul asserts that the body will be raised incorruptible, now he explains what that means. It will be raised in power. Power is is explaining the the reversal of decay of corruption, power and splendor power and glory this is what characterizes the incorruptible resurrection body that 's why Paul says it is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body now i I really wish I really wish they hadn 't used the word natural. Uh, this is actually the word sukikos from which we get our word psyche or psychological, it, it has nothing to do with nature. It has everything to do with soul or life. In in Genesis, the passage that Paul will quote in a few verses, we are told that Adam became a living being, uh, literally a, a living soul, Suke. and he says, and so he's he's making a very intentional play on Genesis with Adam becoming a living soul, and now this is what our soulish body, our a, a psychical body, uh, it, the the creation body. Adam Adam was a body characterized by soul, and now I, I realize that that is a strange phrase. So I understand I understand why the translators were like, okay. Soulish body seems like a strange thing to say. Sure, granted. But these ideas weren't all that familiar to the Corinthians either. So it's not like, it's not like all this made perfect sense to them. No, they had Paul is, has to work hard to explain this to them. So he says, in verses 44 to 49, that's what he does. If there is a psychical body, if there is a soulish body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first creation, is we, we receive a soulish body. In the new creation, we receive a spiritual body. Now, normally, in Greek thought, as they say, soul is opposed to body. Suke versus Soma. But Paul says, no, no, no. Soul is not opposed to body. Soul is opposed to spirit. In the beginning, God made a soulish body, a body animated by soul. And now in Christ, God has made a spiritual body. In his resurrection, there is a body animated by the Holy Spirit. So if you want to understand what Paul means by a soulish body, look back at Adam. When God breathed the breath of life into him, and the first man, Adam, became a living soul, a living suke. Adam's body was animated by soul, by breath. And I should point out the same phrase, living soul, is used in Genesis to refer to all the animals. Everything that has breath can be called a living soul. In Genesis one twenty four, it says, Let the earth bring forth living creatures, living souls the same phrase used of Adam in Genesis 2-7, when God breathed the breath of life into him and he became a living soul. When God gave all the plants of the field as food to the animals, he said that he gave every green plant to everything that has the breath of life. That's the same phrase. To be a living creature, to be a living soul, means to have breath. In the first creation, God animated our bodies with breath. With soul. But in the new creation, Paul says, God will animate our bodies with his own spirit. I've been pointing out throughout the series the importance of uncreated grace. In the first creation, the grace was created grace, namely, God gave us good gifts. And one of the good gifts he gave us was breath. I think we'd all agree breath is a good gift without it you're dead but in the new creation he doesn't just give us good gifts he gives us himself and that's where the the what the the, the spiritual body that Paul's talking about is a body animated by the spirit of God himself Jesus came in order to glorify that which was shameful, to empower that which was weak, to raise us up to everlasting life and glory. And this is where Paul speaks in verses 46 to 49, because he says it's it's not the spiritual that was first, but the the natural, the, the psychical, the soulish, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are, who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul returns to a theme he had introduced earlier in the chapter between the first Adam and the last Adam, between Adam and Christ. And that's where some people in Paul's day believed that, that our our, our purpose was to return to the, the uh, sort of the original the original state. Go back to the garden. People sometimes talk that way today, as though sort of going back to the garden is the way that, the way that we're supposed to go. After all, Adam in the, in the fall now stands for all that is corruptible, dishonorable, and weak. But in Paul's thought, we're not trying to return to the past. Rather, the cross brings a reversal of corruption, shame, and weakness, and the resurrection establishes a glorious new creation. Adam was the man of dust. Even at his creation, he came from dust, and because of sin, he returned to dust. But Jesus is the man of heaven, or the man from heaven, because Paul intends us to see the parallel. He came from heaven. And because of his righteous obedience and his faithfulness, he returned to heaven and will come from heaven again. But the central point of the contrast is, how did Adam become a man of dust? Well, God made him that way. How did Jesus become the man of of heaven? That's because God raised him from the dead. And Paul says that as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so also shall we bear the image of the man of heaven. Because in all of history, there are ultimately two men, Adam and Christ. And you're either in Adam, and you're of the dust, or you are in Christ, and you are of heaven. Now, there's a clear disjunction between them, because the first Adam became a a living soul, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit and that that word life-giving in verse 45 is the same word that he had used in verse 36 when it says what you sow does not come to life unless it dies jesus becomes the life-giving spirit through his death and resurrection because what does jesus do when he when he when he sends out his spirit he unites us to himself paul will say in galatians that I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ gives life to the dead through his own sacrifice, through his own giving of the Spirit, that we become united to him. Jesus becomes the life-giving Spirit by his death and by his burial so that he might be raised as the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Christ becomes the life-giving Spirit as because Paul sees the, the work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit so closely bound together that he will speak of Christ himself as the life-giving Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the presence of the resurrected Christ with his people. But for now, we still bear the image of the man of dust. We live in a world of decay, shame, weakness. We, we live in, in bodies of decay, shame, and weakness. The resurrection body, the incorruptible, glorious, and powerful body, is something that is not yet present for us. But it is now present for Jesus. He has been raised, he has been glorified, he has been seated at the right hand of the Father, and therefore we have confidence that this is where our story is going to. Watch where Paul goes with this. He says, I tell you, brothers, verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These mortal bodies cannot live forever. I mean, and in a very real way, thanks be to God. Can, can you imagine putting up with this forever? No, our bodies decay this is, this is not where we want to be. We must be changed. The perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. Now, what does an imperishable, immortal body look like? It looks like Jesus. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, beyond that, all I can say is, it's it's truly a human body, but it's, it's what a human body becomes when a human person is, is resurrected and glorified. Paul does not say that we will exchange our mortal bodies for immortal bodies. This is not a, let's just throw that out. And be, I mean, you think about what happens to the seed. The seed doesn't sort of, it doesn't go away. It's I mean, everything. Everything that is in that oak tree is in the acorn. It's all right there, but then it grows and becomes what it was meant to be, and that's what the glorified body is. It's not that we exchange; we throw away the old. I mean, just think. If, if you think about the image he's using, if you throw away the kernel. There will be no plant. The only way you get the plant, the only way you get the oak tree, is if the acorn does its job properly. And in the same way, you your body will be transformed. It will be made new. It will be because Jesus has been raised to the heavenlies and sits at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, all who are in Him will bear His image. And if he has a body animated by the Spirit, then so also will we. And Paul says this will happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. The mortal must it's this language of putting on, It's clo- the mortal puts on, clothes itself with immortality. Paul is emphasizing both the identity of your current body with your resurrection body, but also the dramatic difference between the what I have now and what I will have. I mean, again, the acorn and the oak tree. Its, it's the identity is, it's the same acorn produces that oak tree. But the... The immortality will be what I grow into. When Christ returns, we shall be changed. So, okay, so what does that mean? Okay, my, my body, this flesh and blood thing will be transformed. Okay. Uh, what about What about that guy that was eaten by a shark? All the cells of his body were digested and became part of the shark. How does his body get raised imperishable? I know, somebody, somebody was thinking that. like, what, what, if, what happens if the body gets totally destroyed? Well, probably the easiest way to describe this is in terms of DNA and memory. Your DNA is the, the biological program that goes into who you are. Your, your, your memories are the sort of the soulish part of who you are. Now, it's true that the, uh, the guy eaten by the shark has no biological matter left to him. But that doesn't interfere with the resurrection. I mean, this, this, is a, this, is, this is a slightly improper way of saying it. I mean, if, you, if you say that God knows his DNA, I mean it's like of course, but you know, sort of, that's, that's, that would be that's just sort of our earthly scientific way of putting it. God's knowledge being originating, not derivative. But so to say that God knows it, is well, yeah, he does. He was the one who made it. God has no problem finding people's DNAs and their memories. I mean, you know, I mean, if, if you've ever thought, studied memory at all, or if you've just experienced memory for a while, um, or lack thereof, um, then memory is a weird thing. So we can have great confidence that God knows all these things even better than we do. And so God is fully capable of raising everyone from the dead. By this point, as Paul's reflecting on the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, he's, he's just getting excited. And so in, 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 verse, in verse 54, he says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Isaiah 25. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That's from Hosea 13. Isaiah had, had, had said that death would be swallowed up forever when God vindicated his people. Now, the Hosea 13 passage is, is a little odd actually because Hosea 13 is, conde- is bringing judgment condemning Samaria the northern kingdom of Israel he's calling for death to come against God's people but and Hosea is speaking almost as though death is winning but and that's why Paul seems to think that he needs to explain why he's chosen this and he, and he says in verse 56 but the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law oh death where is your sting? well your sting is sin Sin, after all, is what makes death so frightening. Death is the wages of sin. And because I've sinned, I fear death because I I know what I deserve. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has done what Isaiah promised. Jesus has swallowed up death in victory because he has been seated at the right hand of the Father. Okay, so if you're going to have a glorified body one day, if you're if you're looking for the, the the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come, what does that mean today? Well, it means that what you do in the body now is not in vain, because this body that you are now is the same body that will be transformed. That. Who you are and what you do in this age matters, because that's who you are. You are are partly at work in becoming what you will be. It's why Paul says, "Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, (laughs) immovable. I mean, immovable is almost a characteristic of the glorified body." (laughs) And Paul's saying, "Yeah, right." Begin to be that now. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Notice how central Jesus is here. The work of the Lord Jesus, knowing that in the Lord Jesus your labor is not in vain. The one who believes in the resurrection of the body already by faith begins to partake of its power and glory. Because the power and glory of the resurrection body is what? What is it that animates the resurrection body? The spirit. And what do you have right now? The spirit. Already that power that animates Jesus has already begun to animate you. And that was true. This is now ours by faith, not yet by sight. But by faith, it is already beginning. So don't be shaken. But be, but stand firm, hold fast, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And as we saw, what is the work of the Lord? It's whatever you do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. As you engage in the work of the Lord, while you still live in this soulish body, a body characterized by Adam's corruption, shame, and weakness, you have been united to Christ, the one who has a body that is characterized by immortality, glory, and power. And His immortality, glory, and power will be sufficient to sustain you in your toil, in your troublesome labor, until that last trumpet sounds. So keep your eyes fixed. Keep looking for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Let's pray. Lord, help us because we take our eyes off of you so easily. So help us to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that we might hold fast to him, being steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work, knowing that in you, O Lord, our labor is not in vain. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen.